Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And we're back here with another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be asking ourselves this question. Who are the English mystics? Who are they? Is that a song? It could be a song. Who are you? Yes, it could be a song. Maybe, maybe we need to, to define uh, English mystics and mysticism. Like, are we, we're not talking about some sort of modified um what's that kundalini kundalini we're not talking about kundalini stuff excuse my voice by the way audience um, allergies are kicking in here so uh, adam will do what he can to smooth that out later but english mystics i'll just bring up low tones a little bit more oh thank you yeah no problem do what i can yeah what are what are the english mystics who are they that's a very good question I think if I had to define it, I would say that they were a group of individuals, many through monastic life, had a profound experience with the Lord. Yes. That was very mystical. Not really mystical. They, I mean, they just had profound experiences. Some had visions. Some had a very strong, heartfelt experience. It really varies depending on who is there. And then out of that experience developed a way of prayer and of meditation right. within the liturgical life of the church. Yes. We, we would call them today charismatics. Correct. Yeah. But they, as you pointed out, they stayed within the confines of the church. They didn't go create another structure. And they don't exist as uh, an isolated segment of the church because they stand within the vein of mysticism that's common both for the Eastern churches uh, the Roman churches, um, and we get a resurgence of Anglican mystics again, if you want to use, uh, instead of the word English, but Anglican mystics in the 20th century. Evelyn Underhill is one of them. Um, there, I, I can't think of her name right now, but there was a, a religion, an Anglican nun who had stigmata uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, there's video, of course, there's no sound with it, but there's a video, somebody shot a black and white footage of her coming to a church here in the, in the U.S., and when people were coming up to the, the communion rail to receive Christ in the Eucharist, she was there with the priest laying her stigmata, stigmata hands on the heads of people praying for their healing, because she had a healing ministry as well. So we have this vein within our Anglican um, paradigm, mysticism. In this, in, in, in this traditional sense, is distinct from the contemporary and the neo-Pentecostal charismatic world because it's rooted in the long history of the church, and it's rooted in the liturgical understanding of the church, that the church has a form, and without a form, plainly, the church is uh, a wasteland. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be preaching about this a little bit on Sunday, so for those of the people who, who listen to this Friday before they hear the Sunday sermon, they'll uh, hear a little bit of, of uh, uh, repetition here. But in Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit of the Lord sweeps over, he hovers over the surface of the deep, the Scripture says that the earth was what, Josh? For, um, formless and without void. Yeah, or specifically, tohu wabohu. Tohu See, that, that exact phrase was, is what That's was right. on my mind. Tohu and that phrase, formless and void, is only used one other time. It's in the prophet Jeremiah, and it's in reference to judgment that's come upon the land. Well, one of the things that you notice when you compare the two phrases like that and their contexts, respectively, in Genesis and in Jeremiah, is that in Genesis especially, the writer is not saying that there was not a heaven and that there was not an earth. What he's saying is that it was formless and void. Alternatively, how could you articulate that? You would say it's chaotic. It's chaotic. But there's still something there. 
And so you get those, those uh, themes spread all through Scripture so that when you get to the Revelation and it says there was no more sea, that's not a statement of geography. It's a statement of chaos because the source of chaos, it's that one of the beasts rises up out of the sea. It's out of the abyss, so the watery sea underneath the, the earth that the locusts and the destroyer comes out of and it comes out of that in the Revelation. You've got these, these themes in Scripture, right? Well, when you think about Israel coming through the Red Sea out of Egypt, Israel coming out of Egypt, Egypt was formless and void, meaning there was religious form there. There was an empire there, but it was not keeping, uh, it was not living in accordance with heavenly principle under the authority of God himself. It was something pagan. And a lot of these spiritual movements within Christian circles since the Reformation, really since the rise of newer forms of mysticism, spiritualism even in the late 1800s that still want to use some Christian lingo, it's formless and void. The wind is there, there's water there, but it's, it's, it's a genuine darkness that's not gospel light, it's something else. We're not talking about that. And I would recommend, and I, and, I would, and I would advise anybody who's trying to go into, um, for lack of a better term, more experiential forms of praying or the different kinds of prayer and fellowship in the Spirit that remove you from the liturgical life of the church, that remove you from the primacy and the locus that the Eucharist is, you want to avoid that. You're going to run into all kinds of problems. When you can take... The, the inner subjective workings of the Spirit and realize that those are rooted, the, the, the true thing is rooted in Christ's presence in the Eucharist, that's when you can see real significant change. You can see, you, and, and you, have a, you have an assurance, a guard, a guard rails on, on either side, if you will, that you're coming in contact with the living God and you're not engaging in nefarious spiritual powers. The English mystics are that period in history just before the Reformation where we can look at this uh, particularly English form of apophatic prayer, of hesychism, or things that you would find in the Philokalia amongst the East, and stuff that you'll see St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and some of the others pick up on the Roman side. You see this in the English tradition. And so I think that's a, by way of introduction kind of what we're talking about, and hopefully that can be a catalyst for some folks absolutely on a more practical side like obviously within what you're talking about i was just looking this up of course but a more practical wait wait, wait. you didn't know this offhand no i did oh. i mean i've heard of this practice before i ran across it in a book written by like david crowder like years ago david crowder yeah he wrote a book called praise habit years ago uh artist yes music artist a, yes music artist anyway oh the uh, a, dude with the beard yes mm -hmm. okay um and so the practice of Lectio Divina yes, Lectio is, Divina. Yes. is in practice that is a Christian mysticism. It can be. To a certain extent. And I, I mentioned that a couple, was it last Sunday? Two Sundays ago. I mentioned yes. that. Yeah. Uh, Lectio Divina has got its origins in origin um, and can go back into, that's a church father. <laughs> I don't know, like that, that's pretty popular. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. He, uh, it, but it's got roots further back even into rabbinic practice. I mean, N.T. Wright speculates, and I think there's, it's, it's speculation, but it's not unreasonable, that Paul very likely could have been engaging in a kind of Lectio Divina or a mystical praying that was rabbinic while he was on his way to Damascus. Because one of the things the rabbis would do is they would take passages in the Old Testament uh, like the visions of God, specifically Ezekiel's vision of God in chapter 1, you know, by the, by the river of Kibar, you know, he, he had, I had visions of God. And they would recite in their minds and in their hearts, they would go over the verses of Scripture and let their souls really delve into the pictures that the words of Scripture provided. And Wright theorizes that Paul's probably doing that with, uh, you know, Ezekiel 1, you know, the, the, the Son of Man, right? And then suddenly... It's no longer an internal subjective experience, powerful and real as, as that is. Now it's an objective light from heaven itself. 
that's a heavenly vision, as Paul says. You know, I don't know if, if Paul's doing that or not, but the point is that the rabbis and the Jews and, and the mystical uh, life of God's people predates the era of the New Testament. I mean, what do we see in the Old Testament? Prophets. But these are the guys upon whom the Spirit falls and in a, in a very real apocalyptic way pulls back the veil so they can see into the spiritual world. And this is another emphasis that, or another distinction we have to emphasize. The Spirit is the one who instigates this. This is not induced because they've been repeating a chorus for three and a half hours. Correct. Because you can't, you, we can't con God into conjuring up right this, these are not manipulate this is not the prophets of baal jumping around and slashing themselves to get to get something that, that happens so when you come into something like lectio divina you come into this process with the english mystics they're going to emphasize things like fasting they're going to talk about you know how you sit i mean they're, they're talking about and talking about uh, posture for the body not because they're they're talking in terms of magic but because there is a way that you position your heart to meditate upon the words of God and upon the truth of God, that if you are sitting in a way that is, or not even sitting, if you're kneeling in or, or hair shirts, I mean, whatever kind of ascetical practice we're talking about, there's ways that you engage in that so your, your, your soul is able to fly to the Lord. Um, I mean, Bonhoeffer talks about this because I know you like him so much, Josh. Bonhoeffer talks about when you're overly full your body is sluggish, your mind is tired, so you don't pray correctly. Uh, that's why you've got to be careful what you eat at the buffet. But nonetheless, you know, what we do with our bodies matters. And so the English mystics and the whole ascetical practice of Christianity, when it's in its right confines, does, is it teaches us to live in a fasted lifestyle. So we're learning, we see this in Lent, we're learning to lift our hearts and souls to God in ways that may not necessarily be common to us. The English mystics help us do this. I can get down with the idea of focusing either on like a a text or going through that and then just mulling on it over and over again. But some of the things that they get into, I think is interesting because they do the opposite and they talk about shutting off the mind completely yeah. into what do they call it? I believe it's the a, the darkness before... Like just like a, a, a darkness before you truly experience right. the Lord. A darkness before revelation, essentially. Which is, and to do that, the way they describe it is just shutting everything off. Well, I think their, their, um, their experience in Christendom and their lives, for many of them, as monastics is important here to keep in mind. So they're already satiated with Scripture, and they're already satiated with the rhythms and the forms of the church. And you guys know, even though you've only been here for a few years, you've been here longer, that formation is incredibly powerful. So if you miss a Sunday and don't receive the Eucharist, you feel that, not just in your, in your heart, like I miss the Eucharist, there's a physical differentiation. You, you know that you, you, you're out of step somehow. So you go into a monastic life where your whole experience is arranged around the hours of prayer and the meditation of scripture. When they go off to, when they, when they talk about shutting off the mind, and we probably should talk about the processes that they talk about uh, after this to kind of fill it out for. Yes, for correct. And, and it's not completely absurd. And I think the limitations they also set on it and how they protect this. This isn't something that is for everyone and they right. don't prescribe it to everyone. Right. Well, so that's I, the thing. Those about, are also very. Yeah. That's important to note for both the English mystics and the Eastern mystics. Right. They're very. A lot of the stuff didn't get translated until the Bolshevik Re Revolution, in which this stuff came over from the East because they were fleeing Russia, and we started getting copies of some of their writings. Yeah. Yeah. They they are not advocating uh, Eastern religions as is as as some people try to put them together, and there are there have been uh, some Christian leaders whose path back to the Lord through Eastern religions, uh, well, even Don Francisco, the guy who's saying he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. I can't sing it. But Don Francisco was engaged in transcendental meditation when he had a vision of Jesus. And that was his calls to repent and return to the church and renounce transcendental meditation. 
there's a difference between transcendental med meditation, astral projection, um, engaging in these other spiritualities that are outside the parameters of the kingdom of God and open you up to the diabolic. I mean, we're not talking about that, but that which is within the confines of Scripture and the tradition of the church safely. And let me, let me back up before we talk about shutting off the mind. Uh, one of the principal documents that was written on the English mystic side is called the Cloud of Unknowing. Correct. The Cloud of the Unknowing. And it's a reference to how you pray apophatically, meaning you pray with state when you at the in the in the spot when you're still you know articulating your prayers to God. You begin this way. You begin by confessing what He is not. Yeah, so you're starting with the negative yes. confession to a certain extent. Yeah, deductive reasoning. Yeah, you're so a lot of times when you would think about how we talk about God, we all, we use words of simile. He is like this. God is like the sun. You know, he gives us light. He gives us warmth. He gives us, uh, God, God is like this, right? We, we, as, as Jesus says, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, so I would have gathered you. There's a statement of, of metaphor, right? And we pray that way about God a lot, and we should. Scripture's full of it. Scripture's also filled with these other passages about how he's wrapped himself in darkness. He comes upon the, the storm clouds. I mean, Scripture's full of these other images, and they're images that how do we, how do we, how do we confess that? And so one of the ways the church is, has done this is, is apophatic, meaning when you go to pray, God, you are not like the sun. God, you are not like this or not like that. And so what you're doing praying that way is you are praying into his transcendence. You're praying in such a way that you're, you're calling out to him and approaching him, and you're not appropriating him to something else that you're familiar with. That's why it becomes a cloud of unknowing, because you're going to pray and to seek his face, and you don't know how he will reveal himself to you as you're praying that way. So it's not that you're shutting off. It's not like you're climbing into a sensory deprivation tank and you want to be awash in darkness. That's, that's not the idea. And then you're letting whatever your imagination says is going to happen as the Holy Spirit. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about apophatic prayer. You're, you're lifting your heart. You're lifting your soul. You're being to God to connect with him. And then you're letting him decide how he reveals himself by your negative praying. I don't like the word negative praying because we always think positively and think negative things are bad. Uplifting but that's not and how encouraging. The, yeah, positive encouraging. But that's not how the words should go here. You're, and and let, me rec let me just recommend this. I mean, maybe somebody listening, you should hit pause right now and go away. Turn off the radio. Turn off the, the television. Turn off wherever it is you are and spend a half an hour sitting on your couch or sitting on the floor or kneeling down, you know, at an altar um, in, a, in, a, in a church sanctuary in a nave and just still your mind, still your heart before the Lord. And if you're having and, and the way to start that is to say something, take something like the Lord's Prayer or the Gloria Patri and slowly, prayerfully recite those from your mind from your heart and linger on the phrases as you're praying them to the Lord. Yeah, do that for a few minutes and then, then begin to lift up to God what he is not like and just wait, wait in his presence. Now, this doesn't mean something's going to happen. It doesn't mean like you're going to get hit with a lightning bolt. We, although um, in the cloud of unknowing, they talk about that. They talk about like the bolt of lightning, like a, like a, a a, a jolt of love will spring out of your heart up into the darkness where God is, and He He responds back to you. That's all. Me that's all metaphorical language too, but it's talking about how when you're when you're pressing in to know the Lord, let Him determine how He reveals Himself to you. And when you're living within the confines of the teaching of Scripture, then the liturgical life of the church, you can have confidence that what He reveals of Himself will be Himself. You're not going to connect with a demon. You don't have that assurance when you're outside of the liturgical life of the church.
And then whatever subjective, private locutions, experiences you have in the Spirit, you have a confessor, you have a prayer partner, you have, you have a spiritual director, somebody you can talk with about it to, to see, is this the Lord, or, or was I just out of, off my rocker? And those are things to do. That's all part of the, the liturgical life of the church. But this cloud of unknowing, this uh, negative, negative kind of praying is quite profound once you start to pray that way. Because God is not like us. He's not moved in passions like us. He's not limited like us. He's not circumscribed like us. There's nowhere and there is no when that he is not. I think it's so hard in our Western culture to get to that place to where we're just resting and sitting. One of the best parts of this last Sunday night service was a point in time where you just told everyone to just be still and wait. Yeah. And to be frank, and again, in a Western culture, we're not told to be quiet and be silent. We have so much noise filling up every part of our day that we can't hear anything else that God would want to say to us most of the time. Yeah. This is Lent. This is a great time to start to learn how to do this. Um, if people have not read The Cloud of Unknowing, that is the classic text for English mystics. I recommend it. If you have already read through that and you've devoured it and you find that is your, your biscuits and gravy, man, um, then go get, some, get, the, get the philokalia. Get some of the Eastern stuff because it's older. It's, uh, it's, well, there's a lot more to it. They've written a lot more on it. But this is the kind of stuff, like you said, Adam, it's, it was so much, the, the locus, the center for it was in the, the monasteries. It really didn't get outside of that. I mean, I think it's one of the first lines in the cloud of unknowing, uh, the, 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 the instructor says to the student. He says, do not willingly and deliberately read it, copy it, speak of it, or allow it to be read, copied, or spoken of by anyone or to anyone except by, or to a person who, in your opinion, has undertaken truly and without reservation to be a perfect follower of Christ. Yeah, I mean, there's the warning. Do not do this haphazardly. One, because you'll cheapen it. And two, in cheapening it, you open up yourselves to fraudulency, to things that aren't stable and true. It's like telling people to read the Bible. If there's a way to read Scripture to, to gather the, the information in the text, but there's also a way to read Scripture to have fellowship with God. Praying's the same way. We, we talk about uh, people say, you know, liturgy is dead. And as we have said countless times on this, this podcast, liturgy is neither dead nor living. Liturgy is either true or false. It's either right or wrong. What's dead or alive are the people who are observing or celebrating the liturgy. That's where the life and the death principles are at work, not in the liturgy. Liturgy needs a body for it to be activated, if you will, uh, for it to be effectual. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. The same thing happens with so many other points of, that we could talk about. We've talked about it at length. I, I don't want to get back into that those points. Um, but when you're talking about praying with the mystics, they're giving out the warning right at the gate. Don't play with this stuff. Make it a real objective that you're going to learn to pray. Uh, you'll get other Protestants who will pick up on these kinds of things, like um, T. Austin Sparks, uh, A.W. Tozer. You, you get a lot of these fellows who were advocates of what was called the deeper life movement back in the early and mid-20th century. And to my knowledge, I don't know if they quote any of these mystics, but, uh, well, Tozer might, but I know that what they do is start to pull from the veins that are within Scripture that they're, they are spiritually being led to go rediscover. Um, which if you've not read T. Austin Sparks or read Tozer, I'd recommend their writings to you. I mean, Tozer is, has been called an English mystic for, uh, or Protestant mystic for, man, I think while he was still alive or right after he passed away in the early 60s. Tozer would, uh, would go in and say to his, his secretary, please hold my calls. I need to pray for a little bit. So he'd shut his door, 9 a.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he comes back out of his office. And they said, what, what were you doing? He's like, well, I, you know, when he would speak about it, so I was on my face before the Lord gazing on the holiness of God. 
and he didn't move for six hours. And like you said, Josh, we can't do any one thing for 15 minutes today. Uh, Michael Ramsey, one of our faves, we talk about him a good bit on here. Michael Ramsey, Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1960s, very much in this vein of, of mystical prayer and mystical reflection on Scripture. He's, I mean, he's got a whole book just on the Transfiguration. Um, so there's, there's plenty of material here for us uh, that we could go into, but being this is the first time we've talked about this, this part of our Anglican heritage, I thought leading with the mystics would be a good way to go generally. And the other part that I think is important to point out is that this is pre-Reformation. Specific, there's English mystics. A lot of this history is pre-Reformation. -re like, that, that, that is how you had described it. Yes, yes. So, the English mystics specifically, the Cloud of Unknowing, but Ramsey, Tozer, Sparks, well, those guys weren't Anglicans. Um, Ramsey was. Uh, they're all 20th century figures. Correct. Uh, Evelyn Underhill, 20th century. Um, the Reformation in the 1500s is really laying the axe to so much overgrown practice. Now, keep that in context with the stripping of the altars and the stuff we talked about then, but they're laying the axe to the root of, of so many things that are bad that they do cut down some stuff they ought not to cut down. But the point of renewals is that if a reformation overdoes it, but their heart is to serve the Lord, the renewal, the, the renewal, the renewals will come, they will restore the things and then it'll, it'll make them more productive. I, it's not an accident that the charismatic renewal comes through the Episcopal church, comes through the Anglican world. That's not an accident. I mean, Smith Wigglesworth is a Pentecostal, of the mid-20th century, early in mid-20th century, who was well-known for his miracles. You ever read anything by Wigglesworth? Look it up. Wigglesworth had his, what the Pentecostals call, the baptism in the Holy Spirit at an Anglican church in England long before there was a charismatic renewal because these, these, these Catholic mystical strains have been present in our heritage as Anglicans since the first century when Joseph of Arimathea probably brought the gospel to England. So, yes, the English mystics, properly speaking, with the cloud of unknowing, and, um, and we don't even know who wrote that. Uh, I mean, there's theories, but, we, you know, that is the couple centuries of history just before the Reformation. And even though you see it kind of wane a little bit, it never really, all, it doesn't disappear. We're, we're talking about it right now. It's clearly not disappeared. Yeah, I think that's one of the um, looking at the, one of the negatives of the English Reformation was kind of how it responded to that. Because, uh, for example, uh, one of the mystics, uh, Julianne or Juliana of Norwich. Yeah, yeah. She in particular. So there was two pretty much they created almost like a cell on the church there in Norwich, and or Norwich, Norwich. However you want to, however you want to pronounce it. Is it? Is it is it Worcestershire, Worcestershire, or Worcestershire, or something else? I've heard it all three ways. Is it Norfolk or Norfolk? Sussex or... <laughs> Louisville or Louisville? Is it Appalachia or Appalachia? But anyway, Julian of Norwich, keep going. Keep going. So, Sorry. Either way, so, so you look at what happened there, and that city was actually, especially at the time when um, the peak of the English mystics, was a very important city. Um, and so it, it be, for even religion, culture, things like that. And so you have two other mystics after her. And then what happens at the, at the Reformation is they come in and they tear a lot of that out. The root screen gets torn out. And that effectively ends. Yeah. And so this heritage that was really being created there. I mean, this woman, she her, her experience that she has is she has uh, 16 visions of Christ. And what happened was during the black plague, there was a crucifix at the bottom of her bed and um, she thought she was dying, which everybody, well, they were right. The black they plague were. has that's a right. way of, <laughs> that's of, why it's uh, called the black plague, right? Yeah. Anyway. So she's sitting there and she looks on the crucifix and it begins to bleed. And, and, and it just, she has 16 other experiences 
while she's laying there over that day and night and completely changes the way that she lives her life and creates essentially an office there. She becomes an advisor later on in life. There's a lot of stuff that she is working into the sacramental life of the church. Doesn't do her own thing. She is literally attached to the church. And that in itself says something, that this wasn't a random room out in the middle of nowhere. No, this was a room that was attached to the church in which we have record of at least two other women after her staying there until the, the Reformation. And so just looking at some of the negatives of the stripping of the altar, here right. it is. That's it. This office and this heritage, I mean, you're talking about three generations to that point of women who are having a similar experiences all tied within the, the life of the church, not separate underneath the authority of the church. And this is one of the things that goes away. Yeah. Yeah. I, you look at today, the number of, because a lot of these English mystics are women, not surprising. That's often the case. Not always, but often the case. Look at the number of um, people today, male and female, who have profound spiritual experiences, and then they leave the church, or they go to another church, because that church has the Holy Spirit, failing to recognize that if what they are experiencing is really genuinely rooted in the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, they will be cleaving to Christ in the sacrament. They will run to the front to receive him in the Eucharist or, you know, walk slowly with their heads bowed. <laughs> but you get the metaphor. You, you don't leave. I mean, think of Joshua staying in the tabernacle after Moses has left because he's still fellowshipping with the Lord. Mystical guidance, mystical direction in the spirit. He leads us to Christ's presence more powerfully. And all of these subjective, life-transforming, spirit-filled experiences that we have that do not lead us to Christ's presence in the Eucharist must be called into question because the spirit always testifies of Jesus. Always. And, and you brought it up at the beginning how this wasn't these weren't happening during these heavy dopamine experiences. These people, right. they, they're not, um, I think the exception might be, um, uh, they don't have strobe lights. In no, it. they don't. I mean, the exception would be like Richard Roll. Uh, he talks about having an experience hearing angelic hosts while chanting the Psalms. So you might say, oh, he is singing. Okay. It's not, if you sat down and listened to the Psalms being chanted, it's not like Hillsong playing uh, right. like 11 out of 10. Um, but their experiences that they're having are almost in a sterile environment. I know what you mean. There's no fog uh, machines. Well, it's very interesting when I look at that because the way that many charismatics get there today is not through the silent prayer. Is It's through, what's the song, my favorite song. They have to put on their favorite mixtape and listen to that, and then they're ready to pray. Or it's Baal. It's, it's, it's the prophets of Baal. I mean, there's, this, there's a very clear distinction when Elijah has them drench the offering with water and then kneels down and says essentially a paragraph. He, he offers a collect, if you will. And in response to the collect, fire comes down and consumes everything. After the Baal, Baal's prophets are cut and bloodied and, and tired and exhausted. And he's mocking them. Yes. Maybe, shout a little bit louder. Maybe yeah. he can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. I mean... I almost said sing a little louder, but <laughs> we don't, we say, pray down the power. Um, hmm. Well, I know what people, most people mean when they say that, and I'm very sympathetic. Yes, we need to be praying to, to experience the Lord. I'm, I'm, we're, we're talking about English mystics, but the idea that somehow or another, we're going to make the Lord come and do something doesn't work that way. In fact, the sacraments are what he has already promised to do through the sign he gives the grace. John Chrysostom, in his On the Priesthood, says clearly that when the priest stands at the altar and consecrates the elements, what happens to those elements of bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Christ 
is a greater miracle than Elijah calling down fire on Carmel. And if we as a people, when we approach Christ in the Eucharist, believed with the kind of enthusiasm, if we saw lightning bolts hit the parking lot on the way into the church, that God was present, he was there every time we came to the table, we couldn't stop the mystical experiences people would be receiving because they would have a lively faith as they received Christ. I'm not saying everybody would have dreams and visions on the way back to their seats, but they would be approaching with a lively faith and would be transfigured by him who wants to do the transfiguring. And English mystics are a good catalyst for us, a lot of these, these, these um, venues as we're talking about. Also currently within America, right? You, at least from my perspective, I became a fan not too long ago, but still sort of, of some of the people within um, evangelical, the evangelical world in America that are probably more on the cessationist side of, th of things. And some, like a lot of the stuff they were saying is true, but there's an unhealthy perspective of how that shoved into the place of churches that to experience these sort of things in healthy ways as a part of worship is something to be frowned upon. It's something to be, for better, for a better word, something to be avoided. But the reality is, the Lord working and someone to do this stuff, even in my life or any Christian's life, as a to draw them into that, it's something that He does Himself, and not necessarily. We don't need to understand it and have, have to describe it like point A to all the way down to point Z. But it's something to be wrestled with in a healthy way. Well, this is part of what happens in the English Reformation is the cessationist, anti-supernatural, anti-gifts, um, anti anti-mystical experience. Anti-miracles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then cessationism is sort of like the charismatic movement in, a, in its sense, in the sense that you have different shades of variations within it. Yeah. Uh, because most cessationists who are high churchmen would acknowledge that there is a miraculous transfiguration or some whatever term they're going to use every time there's a baptism or every time there's the Eucharist, every time there is absolution, there is transforming miraculous grace that's being communicated through the sacramental life of the church. We'd say amen to all of that. Um, but then you have the other cessationist side of things who would say, well, there are no sacraments anyway. There are no miracles. There's, you know, there's just your faith in Jesus and all you need is faith. Right. 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 So you've got variations of what it means to be cessationist as just in the same way that you do there's variations of what it means to be charismatic. Yeah. Which the only reason why I put it out there was to help because I know some people listen, and I'm not trying to throw shade in anybody who is in that avenue of thought. But I think you did. No, not not. I wasn't trying to intention. I'm just saying that you, there's you a healthy. You just throw there, shade. You threw darkness. There is no. Well, there, there's a healthy amount of darkness that we need, according to what Adam was saying from the beginning, right? In order to experience what God wants us to experience. Different darkness. Different darkness. Different different idea. Yeah. Different idea. Different analogy. Yes. Yeah. My apologies for mixing those. So, so my question in all of this is how do we properly apply what is happening with the mystics? Really, I mean, we're talking specifically about the English, but we haven't right. really talked about the mystics of the East or of, of other times and places. How do we directly apply this or how do we correctly apply this? Because when you look at it, this is was not the experience of every single person at this time. It was the experience of a select few, and much of it was very subjective. And I think it, it was... Not subjective in a bad sense of it, it didn't happen, but it, it was a subjective experience for those people because you look at their experiences that they have and, you know, you look talk at, about some of the stigmatas, but... I yeah, mean, well, look, let's, let's look at uh, Ezekiel. Let's look at Jeremiah. Let's look at uh, Daniel. Let's look at um, Isaiah. Let's look at those handful of prophets. Daniel gets preserved... In the lion's den, that's a, a observable miracle, and he only eats vegetables, but he looks like he has steak dinner every night, right? That's in Daniel one. Other than that, what happened to those guys that was miraculous? 
everything they had was an interlocution. Everything they had was God's word coming to them in a non-observable way. Elijah and Elisha and a few of the other prophets in the, in the history of Israel, but they are the two primary prophets after Moses and Joshua who are used in, in signs, whose prophetic ministry is full of miraculous events. Samuel, you could number, you could put him in there. The majority of the prophets of the Old Testament were people upon whom the burden of the Lord came, and they would relate a vision or a dream or or the the divine unction on the inside that no one else experienced other than themselves. And oftentimes it's while the people are living on the fat of the land and their high economic um, uh, wealth and prosperity. That, or even in the days of reform under Josiah, that Jeremiah begins to prophesy, God is coming to destroy the land because your repentance is not beyond the surface. It's only surface level. So that's part of the, the, the prophetic charism all through Scripture. When you come into the New Testament, the apostles are working signs. They're doing miracles just like the Lord. And... You have others, you know, the evangelists, other people in the New Testament doing this. Then you have the revel revelator, John the Revelator. It's, it's visionary. These guys seeing, they're seeing the opposite in their visions of what's taking place physically. I mean, so the prophets are prophesying in, in Israel in the days of, of great goodness that judgment's coming. And the people are saying, well, how can judgment be coming? Things are so good. And then when the army comes in and destroys them all and raises the city, then the prophets are saying, God will restore you. God will restore you. You go into the Revelation, and they're being destroyed by the Roman government. And John says, really, the beast has already been slain. He's going to be slain by the Lord. So that the fundamental material miracle of all of Scripture is the resurrection of Jesus. And that is apprehended by faith through the word of God proclaimed. So when you look at the English mystics and how it's these isolated people in the vein of mysticism, granted, across the East and the West, their experiences become signs. Their subjective locutions become signs and catalysts for other people, which is why Julian of Norwich can have successors coming after her to pray in the same spot. That's one of the reasons the Spirit gives the gifts he does, is to, is to continue to build interdependency in the church, which is why these people staying in the church is so important, and how they don't go create their own system. English, the, the, the praying with the mystics. Is everybody going to enter into mystical forms of prayer? No. No more than everybody, no more than everybody receives everything in common right? Jesus has 12 apostles. He takes three up to the transfiguration. So he, he, he doesn't even take all 12 up with him. And on the way down the mountain, he tells the three, don't talk about this till later on. So he gets down there and here are the other nine who can't cast a demon out of, the, out of the little boy. And they're like, listen, man, you gave us authority. Why couldn't we cast it out? And he says, because you're perverted and you don't have any faith. That's what Jesus told him. So, you know, I'm so glad he doesn't talk like that anymore to people. But that's what he told the nine, right? <laughs> so you, you get this going on in Scripture, and I think one of the dangers is that if somebody's listening to this and they'll say, I never have any kinds of experiences like that. I'm not even going to try it. If, you're, if you go to pray according to the, the precepts and things in the cloud of the unknowing, for an experience, you're missing the point. The point is not to have a subjective experience. The point is to learn to cry out to the Lord to connect with him in a transcendent way that is inarticulate. And if in that place of unknowing, when you don't know what you're, you're, you're not governing yourself in the way that you normally do, as it were, and he reveals himself in some profound way to you, that's, that's wonderful. That's great. Is that the objective? Well, the, object, the objective is to pray. The objective is to seek the Lord. And there are uncommon graces in the common practice of praying. 
I think that's that's the big one of the big takeaways here. Um, and we've only mentioned a handful of the mystics here. I mean, Julian of Norwich, Richard Rohr. Well, you know, here's another. You mentioned we didn't mention him, but we should mention him, even though he's not English. Uh, Say John of the Cross, his Dark Night of the Soul. The whole thing in the Dark Night of the Soul. One of the big points of it is that. He, and he goes through the stages of somebody's personal development, how they get super pious and wear big crosses everywhere. And, you know, they just kind of get on everybody's nerves because they're always trying to be holy. Uh, and then the person who in their holy and that heavy piety suddenly no longer senses God's presence. It's a dark night of the soul. It's in that place. What the English mystic would call the cloud of unknowing as a prolonged experience that now you begin to really know the Lord because you're knowing him beyond your passions. You're knowing him beyond your intellect. And God intentionally sends all of us who know him into those experiences because it's there that we get to know him better and he refines the gifts that are in us. That principally is one of the things that the liturgy does for us is it teaches us not to rely on how we feel. When we're tired, we get up and we go to morning prayer. When we're got, we got headaches and we're busy and we're, our schedule is filled to breaking, we make it a point to take the Lord's day and not work and go in and worship whether we feel it or not. It's one of the principal means of the, of the liturgy, one of the functions. Not only is it constituting us as the body of Christ, but it's calling us out of living in our passions. Praying with the English mystics and taking their principles at heart causes us to start to relate to God in his transcendence. So whether he appears to us in visions like Julian sees, you know, Christ bleeding for the sins of the world to heal the, the black death, or the, the black plagues and stuff, you know, these are the experiences that, that God does give to people. Whether he gives them to us or not isn't the point. If in a, any given church service, we've got somebody in here, and let's say they have and, and, and interlocution of the Spirit, God has quickened them. Well, whether that's something they should share with the church or not, the fact that He is quickening them is an indication of His blessing that we all should take, take strength and encouragement from. I mean, the only thing that I can honestly articulate that it coincides with this, but there was no direct correlation. I did not know we were going to be talking about the mystics a couple weeks later. I was driving to work, maybe it was a couple weeks ago. It was super early in the morning. It was, I didn't even want to be driving to work. But the only thing going on in my mind was, okay, Lord, I got to pray right now. I got to pray. I got to pray. Like almost like in a really hasty way. And for whatever it was, it was almost like the Lord was just like, just sit here and be silent. Don't say anything right now. And, or that's, that's the impression I got. And I sat there and it was, it was not easy, but it gave this sense of peace. There was no like super mystical experience with it, but it just gave this huge sense of peace that came from the Lord in that particular morning, in that particular day that I would never have gotten if I would just rushed into prayer and been like, oh, you know, gone through my list, my agendas and different things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, praying, praying mystically doesn't mean that you're, um, experience chasing. Yeah, I mean, for yeah, for certain. It gets used that way, but that's not what it's supposed to mean. I mean, the English mystical history, as we mentioned already, it goes far back before the uh, the medieval mystics. You can take this in England. You can take, you take it all the way back to the Celtic Church. You can go back to the Celts, their ascetical practices, their visions, the dreams, the dream of the rude. You can go back to Bede, his ecclesiastical history. You can go back to Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, this has been part of the practice of God's people since the Old Testament, as we as we started talking about this. Um, I think, as we've just mentioned a few minutes ago, the reformers beat this thing the wrong way because they become almost cerebral in some ways. But I think they are responding to things that need to be corrected. And so you move forward after the, the era of the Reformation, properly speaking, but still within the, the parameters to Lancelot Andrews, 
and to his private devotions, uh, which were not published until after he died. Greek, Hebrew, and Latin filled his little prayer journal of the prayers that he offered to the Lord. And um, Andrews definitely, in his, his, his private journal, uh, reflects a kind of uh, mystical devotion, if you will. I mean, he's got his own private prayer chapel. He's got uh, Eucharist on the regular. And, and if I remember correctly, when I was reading through his private journals, a couple apostrophe prayers to the Blessed Virgin. I mean, so apostrophe prayer, meaning it's, it's, um, it's not like a full collect or something. It's a, you know, uh, mother pray for us or something to that effect. I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but um, you see that in the Caroline Divines, these, some of these, these practices start to come back. Uh, even though they wouldn't use the word mystical because they're still operating out of some of the um, overemphases, I'll say, of some of the stuff in, in between 1530 and 1595. I know that's hard for some of our Anglican buddies who think that is the, the height of Anglican wisdom. And I'm like, well, I know. <laughs> uh, if we can't go back and appeal to the older fathers and, and you know, we, let me say it this way. We should not read Christian history through the Reformation. We should read the Reformation through Christian history. That's the much better way to do this. And when you do that, you can go back to Bede. You can go back to St. Patrick. You can go back to um, uh, Anselm. You can go back to Our Lady of Walsingham. Um, for those who don't know what that is, check it out. It's far before the English mystics are, are properly called, but it's uh, right around the era of the Battle of Hastings with the Norman Conquest. And she, um, it's a wealthy land, uh, lady who the spirit in a vision shows her Mary's house in Nazareth. Pretty sure it's Nazareth in a vision. And so when the vision ends, the woman builds the replica on her property of Mary's home and then builds a little, uh, has a little statue made of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary and Christ as a child, and it's called Our Lady of Walsingham. And from 1061-ish up until uh, even after the Reformation, because Henry would go there with Catherine you know, when he was still married to her, it is one of the main pilgrimage sites in, um, in England and was restored. Um, I mean, it fell into disuse for quite a while. But it, after the Reformation, but it was restored late 1800s, early 1900s. And today there's an Anglo, Anglican, Roman, and Methodist uh, churches are all in Walsingham now that do a lot of joint work together around this, the experience of, of the lady there in 1061, uh, Rochelle, Rochelle, I believe. But anyway, that's hundreds of years before the English mystics, properly speaking. But you can go back and you can look at that. And then, as we've already mentioned, everybody since, you know, Underhill and Ramsey and some of the others. So the recommendation is really, if you're not familiar with these people, look them up. Look them up. Figure out what they had to say. You know, have an appreciation. Think more artistically, less uh, academically when you read them. You know, that's one of the things mystics do. I mean, you read uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. And his visions, you're like, man, what in the world was that? <laughs> uh, you know, so you, you got you to, gotta, you know, not be as academic in reading them and try to appreciate the devotional heart that's there um, and how subjective it is, which is not bad when it's set within the objective liturgy of the church. And that's my biggest takeaway from all of this is I read about their love that they have for the Lord. And these are mature believers who are within the vibrant, or within just the liturgical life of the church. Yeah. Many times those ideas are put in juxtaposition. Right. The idea of this very passionate, bright love and liturgical worship. Like I hear that all the time from my, yeah. from family members or, or friends from other organizations and that's you know that's all fine and dandy but you know pretty much we love jesus over there and I, I don't think it has to be either or i think the idea of injecting this this love that they they speak of for the lord and we're not talking about a 
like mature old couple love because so many times we talk about loving the lord and we say oh well it matures and uh you know and they draw the example of two old people that kind of hate each other you know that's the love that that's that's the love that we need to know i think there's something about the love that they have and the desire they have to know the lord in a deeper way that is convicting and that should be emulated and when you seek after the Lord with the ferocity that these people do, that these mystics do, I think you're going to experience the Lord in a a new, just deeper way. I yeah. I don't think, and there's something about their their love that is truly childlike, that is just like a kid that loves their dad. Well, my dad can. Well, my dad can do this. Well, my dad can do this. And you just see that within their writings, and there's something about that perspective and approaching the Lord with that, not as your only way. You can't just be daddy God all the time. And that's the only way you're approaching the Lord. You're, you're going to be in error. But it's the idea of... Well, bringing, I would advise not saying daddy God anyway, but you, I got you, your you, point. Like that, that childlike <laughs> love yeah. for, their, for their father. Yeah. I think when that's coupled with the, with the liturgical life of the church, you get something that is powerful and something that is deep and that is profound, and it doesn't have to be either or. No, it's not supposed to be. And the fact that people think that it is reflects a lack of understanding of the whole church. You don't understand the history of the church. Don't perceive that the church is always loving God with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the mind, with all the strength. That's what we're supposed to do. Let me, um, let, let's round out, let, let, let's wrap this up, round it out with this. Let me give a couple, couple practical pointers, steps here for people. One. Get yourself some prayer beads. Beads? Beads. Wow. The English word bead comes from the Latin word pray. Oh. Or the old English word pray. I have to look that back up. But anyway, beads, prayer beads is like a double positive. It's B-E-D. Yeah. Like bead is prayer. The bead, the uh, venerable bull. No, I only spell it because some of the English language that I know of now spells it B. A-D. No, no, B-E-D-E, prayer beads, and or B-E-A-D-S, but it's prayer beads, meaning it's uh, you're praying, right? So get, get yourself a set of prayer beads. Doesn't have to be a full rosary. Just get yourself a prayer rope with knots in it or something. Get yourself some prayer beads, something you can, you can hold with your hands. Second, have the Lord's Prayer. Have the Gloria Patri. Have the Apostles' Creed. Have some other passages of Scripture memorized. Have them memorized. Three, go find a retreat center. Find a, a, I don't mean it's got to be like an actual, you know, park, but find um, an empty church. Uh, Roman Catholic churches are usually open. Everybody else locks the doors. Don't know why, but find yourself a church that's open um, and go somewhere, whether it's to that church or to some prayer place to walk or, 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 um, a quiet spot in your house where it's actually quiet and spend a half an hour a week in meditative, quiet prayer and stillness before the Lord. Adopt that. Adopt that try it. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning here, try it to, to start out praying slowly, meditatively, and then in that transition, as your, as your heart and your mind are slowing down, your body's starting to relax, start to confess to God what he is not, and then go into just silence. Stop talking. Whether you're feeling anything or not, that's not the point. Just stop talking and, and quiet your heart before the Lord. And that's when you'll go into that, quote, cloud of unknowing and just stay there for a little while. Go into that still place before the Lord. And if you find that you're getting distracted, you know, use those prayer beads. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. You know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Or whatever, whatever other scripture verse you've got in mind, go back to it and just do that for half an hour. Do it once a week and do that for two or three months. See what happens. See, see if you find that that is you are, see if you, you're part of that mystical vein or not, because maybe you're not. But that kind of praying will help you begin to understand experientially. Your mind and your heart will connect 
And when someone says to you that they were in prayer and they heard the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and you know that they're, they're an earnest person who spends time in prayer, that the probability that they were having a mystical experience genuinely occurred, you can congratulate them. You can give thanks to God for that instead of being disbelieving. And because you are continuing in a prayerful offering of your life to God, you will also be able to tell when it's not the Holy Spirit, especially if they detach from the Eucharist, they break from the fellowship of the church, they contradict clear and plain teaching of Scripture. Um, I think realistically, you do this, you're going to need to be careful because you're going to have a much more keener sense of discernment, which can lead you to a kind of depression. Because you're going to get spiritually depressed to see it all the stuff that's, that's named in the Lord's name he's not a part of. <laughs> I think you may have a different problem uh, when you get to that spot. That's if you do, probably let us know. why Jeremiah was called a weeping prophet. Uh, he's called a weeping prophet because he sees the destruction that's coming. But uh, I, you know, you know, I, I think people get to that spot. They should, if they want to, you know, send us a note. And let us know. Maybe we'll, we'll do another topic on how to deal with spiritual depression. You know, Martin Lloyd Jones talks about that stuff. Um, but I think those are practical steps for praying with the English mystics. That those are good ideas. I think we covered that topic pretty well. I hope so. And if there's any further questions. No, I'll, let me listen. We didn't cover it, Josh. We introduced it. Correct. Yes. I'll restate that. I think we introduced the topic concerning English mystics and who they are pretty well. If there's any further questions or concerns or any further, you know, feedback about the English... The English, the English mystics, please email Daryl at ascensionwv.org. That's spelled D A R R Y L at ascensionwv.org. I thought he was going to say that's spelled J O S H U A space I S space W V FIDE. <laughs> no. <laughs> I do apologize if I stuttered at all. <laughs> but on that note, I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.